the name Szabo. Tell me what the background of your last name is. It's Hungarian. Hungarian. Yeah, my dad's Hungarian. He came over in 56 from Hungary, and that's, I don't know if you know that history, but that's the Russians, that was the okay. Hungarian uprising against the Russians, you know, tanks in the streets and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, but I don't speak Hungarian, so anybody that sees my last name who's Hungarian knows immediately I'm Hungarian and then starts speaking in Hungarian and then I disappoint them. <laughs> <laughs> was there much Hungarian culture in your in your youth? Just a little bit of food. He, he We never went back. I went back once. Well, I shouldn't say back. I, I went for the first time once, and the first time my dad had been back since he left, I think, when I was five, six, something like that. Yeah. So you don't really remember? It. Not really, no. I've, I've seen photos, so you know, it, it seems like a memory, but I don't think if I hadn't seen the photos, I, I'd, I'd remember those, mm-hmm. those moments. So I'm talking to Rob Zabo, who is a musician. Um, I'm not sure if you're still a solo artist. I know you're a producer now. Do you still, I know you still play, but do you still actively do solo work? I do, actually. I, uh, I just spent the last six months or so doing residencies, both in Toronto and Kitchener. And I hadn't, since I started producing sort of in earnest, which was probably six, seven years ago, uh, I'd stopped playing. I, I was touring at one point, like 150 dates a year, and sort of went from that to nothing. So it was nice this past year to get back into playing regularly. So what did the residency mean? What What does that mean? Just weekly. Oh, okay. So so you played at something. Like yeah, I played the same venue okay. every week for you know a few months at a time. So what made you do that? I got excited about. Uh, I don't know. You go through phases in your life. <laughs> perspective and my dad died last year so that uh kind of shook me up a bit and and made me realize I don't know it's it's hard to put into words it's kind of I I know I love playing music but I guess when I started producing I'm 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 super focused guy Mm -hmm. so I guess for whatever reason I just thought well I have to only produce I don't know why. (laughs) Now that I I went back to playing, I kind of thought, well, there's nothing to say that I can't do both, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because one of my questions is going to be, well, why did you decide to give it up and whatever? So we'll go to that. Tell me about how you started, how you first got into music. Um, My parents forced me to to start with violin and viola and piano and all that stuff I did reluctantly. Now, at you know, a really look, early age, or fairly early age, uh, you know, maybe grade three, four. Okay. I remember the music teacher like doing a, a rhythm, just a, they made you clap in rhythm as kids to see whether you had natural rhythm, right. and then they would stream you into whatever instrument accordingly. Did, did you do that kind of no, thing? No, but I've heard other people mention that, yeah, yeah. So, I, I guess I was able to clap back the rhythm the teacher had played for me, so then I, you know, they put me on viola, I guess. And, and so you said reluctantly, did you gain an appreciation for playing music at any point then? Not until much later. So I, you know, I took piano lessons, I took viola, violin, I took even acoustic guitar, which wasn't my idea, which at the time to me, I was just dragging, dragging my feet through because to me it was, you know, at the time it was folk music and that I had no interest in that at the time. It wasn't rock, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh... I, I was just, you know, this is, this is, this is no fun. All the while, you know, taking in music and, and learning stuff without realizing it. So and, did your, 
So you did like music. It's not like you didn't like music. Oh, I love music. But uh, it's funny when you're a kid, you don't realize that some of the stuff you're going to use later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? And then I, I wonder, what is it about your parents that thought that you need to go through this? Because there's, it just seems like there's such an... Um, there's so much to be said for kids who are educated music early and, uh-huh. and the discipline that they get, whether it be in music or other things in life. Yeah, I couldn't, you said yeah I couldn't agree more. I, it's, I would liken it to learning another language, right? I, I learned to speak French as well, which I'm really grateful for too. I think it does something to your brain just uh, by virtue of learning another language. You, you learn that there's many different ways to look at everything in life. And I think people who only know one language probably miss some aspect of that. Yeah. Um, I don't. Did you take music lessons as a as a child? I wasn't very good. They told me to stop. <laughs> really? I was no. You know what? I started music in grade nine, and um, and I took the viola. I don't uh-huh. know why. But Both of was, us viola. <laughs> but it was. I wasn't. You know, at one point in the year, they said, "Well, you know, some if if some kids are interested, you could do music projects instead instead of." continuing with the music lessons and and i decided to do that and i remember doing um a project on neil young and a project on the who so oh nice um, yeah i've always liked music but obviously playing it i i did wind up playing the drums for a little while very poorly but um not no musical education no such i'm always curious (laughs) so so what do you think that gave you that background yeah I use a lot of those skills or, or the kind of fundamental... But sorry, you, at this point, you're still very reluctant. You're not really into doing these lessons. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it took me until grade seven. And in grade seven, after I'd already been through violin, viola, many years of piano, um, acoustic guitar, which I, again, like I said, reluctantly. And then in grade seven, I decided I want an electric guitar and I begged my parents for a full year and they, they were reluctant because they said, well, I mean, you, you never really dedicated yourself to all this other stuff. I, I was good at it, but I didn't, I would never really practice. My whole thing with the piano teacher was I never learned to read well. It's because I would learn the songs by ear when, for whatever reason, this piano teacher would play me the songs I was supposed to learn that week in the lesson, right. you know, sort of at the end of, end of the lesson, he would, okay, learn this song. Here's your homework, play it. And I would memorize it so that I, I didn't have to play. I didn't have to read it. I would just learn it from memory, which is really good for your ear, but you don't learn to read. And I've read since there's a lot of musicians who, who fall into that yeah, yeah. without really meaning to you just, that's just what's natural to you. You know, you know what I mean? Is that relative pitch or is that like, I I don't know how one does that to be able to hear it and kind of memorize it. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's the same as if you're mimicking someone or doing an accent, I suppose. Right. Do you know what I mean? You listen to what's being presented to you and then you commit it to memory and you, so people typically who are really good at music are often good at imitating others or, or yeah. some aspect of that, like Steve Strongman, you know, you ever yeah. hear him do accents or do imitations of people? He's great at it because his ears so good, right? right? He notices all the little nuances. Huh. Yeah. Um, so, well, can he listen? So in grade seven, you want to be a rocker. What are you yeah, yeah, yeah. To? So, so at the time I was listening to metal, a lot of hard rock and metal. And I was, I wanted to, so my parents reluctantly got me a guitar for Christmas and I just practiced, I started practicing hours a day basically into into my 20s I, I used to play i'd play like i'd come home for lunch p- 
play through the lunch hour and then go back to school, come home after school, play until dinner, eat dinner, play until I went to bed. I did that for years. So I'd be, I'd be playing probably four or five hours a day, every day. For Tell years. me the first thing that you learned on your electric guitar that just made you want to go further and further. Uh, the first thing I learned was uh, TNT by ACDC. <laughs> just, and that's so simple, but it's now that, you know, this year Malcolm Young passed, yeah, right? Yeah. And I was, I was listening to that song and thinking, what a simple, the, it's so simple, but it's so sophisticated at the same time. That's some of the best stuff's like that, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of their stuff is like that. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. It's but then tr- try and play it, right? Try and play it. We were, we, uh, Steve and I played that song at our Christmas show, and I was lifting it again, which is funny because you, you play it from memory for years, and you go and listen to it, and you go, I never played it right, and I, I still can't play it right, just like the record. Yeah. Wow. So... Did you get into a band immediately or? Uh, pretty soon after that. Yeah, I pr- played for a couple of years and then, you know, like people do in high school, kick around garage bands and play parties and stuff like that. And mainly metal. Yeah, mainly metal and hard rock and some blues. You know, I started getting into the classic rock and Jimi Hendrix and then some more esoteric guitar player type stuff. So from that, how did you decide that, okay, I want to pursue this and become a musician for, as a career? I, I didn't deliberately it's funny i was talking to my mother recently about this she said something along the lines of uh i never really made a decision in my life i kind of just went along with how things were presented to me you know like she moved from quebec to toronto when she was in her early 20s and you know met my dad and then they had a family and all this stuff but she she says i don't remember at any one point saying i want to do this and i'm going to do it and these are the things i need to do same thing with music for me i just started playing in bands and got out of high school and then next thing you know i was working at a music store in kitchener um and then i guess i deliberately at a certain point i started playing with this band called the groove daddies in kitchener that in kitchener ontario and that was my first quote unquote real band and people started coming to our shows. We started writing our own music. And this was early 90s. And there was sort of a, I don't know if you remember, you know, the Bare Naked Ladies and mm-hmm. Lois of the Low and bands like that, the Rio Statics. There was sort of an explosion of Canadian Indian, Indian indie music. Right. And it, it sort of felt like, well, you could do this for real. You know, you could tour. So things, I, my memory of it now is things sort of falling into place. You know, we... Uh, we we did some recording at one of the bigger studios in Kitchener because they approached us and said, you know, you guys are great. You sh- you really should be recording here. What what do we need to do to make that happen? And sort of through a sequence of events, next thing you know, we had a song that was being played on CFNY in Toronto, and you know, we got a manager and an agent, and all these things came to us. Wow. And so at a certain point, I thought, well, I, I should probably quit my day job because it seems like this is the dream, even though if you'd asked me, you know, are you going to still be doing this 25 years from now or 30 years from now? I, I, I had no illusions that that would happen. Definitely. I was just, you know, you just go along with, you know, in your twenties, you right. just kind of go along with things and sure. It seems like an opportunity. <laughs> let's do it. So if I asked you what you might've envisioned that this would result in when people said you should make a record, did you have any idea? Like, was there, I know it wasn't a goal and it maybe wasn't even a plan, but at that moment when you decide that you would record your own album, 
Did you think you had something in mind that you were hoping to attain? The first uh, recording, like or quote unquote, real recording we ever did was released on cassette, right. actually in like 1992, and that's probably the most. I ever sold of anything, uh, anything I've released in my whole <laughs> career. And we didn't try to do anything. We didn't try to make it. It was basically, that was recorded. At that time, there was just, this is gear stuff, ADAT machines. Mm -hmm. So this is digital tape machines, which were relatively new at the time. So what it meant was you didn't have to pay because I worked at a music store, there was an audio side to that, like people who did, you know, sound reinforcement for shows and we were all friends. So we just set up in a guy's basement and they would record us with whatever gear they had from the music store, right? So it was all done on the cheap and put out on the cheap and everything. And we thought we sold thousands of them. <laughs> it was all like, and, and it's not like we had any, like I said, plan to do big things. It was, you know, you're a certain age and, People were excited about it, I guess. So did that lead to going on the road? Yeah. Yeah. So within within a couple of years, like I said, uh, manage a big time manager in Toronto approached us a big time agent. So we were with uh, Tom Barry at the time, who managed uh, Max Webster and Kim Mitchell and uh, Holly Cole and people like that. So he, he was excited about us because uh, I told you we had got some play on CFNY as part of Remember Bare Naked Ladies won? Yeah, they had yeah. this like competition. So we were part of one of those years. So uh, I don't know. We, these people came to us and said, okay, we're going we're gonna to shop you to labels in the States and we're going to make a video and we're going to put you on the road. And so we, you know, in 1994, we were on tour across Canada. I remember <laughs> my, my first memory of that is being in, where was it? Canmore. So that's right at the beginning of the the mountains, yes. the Rockies. A there, beautiful place, one of the most gorgeous, beautiful right? Town. So yeah. I remember being there at the Drake. I don't know if you've ever been to that mm -hmm. place, and we were doing a residency there. So I think at the time, people don't do this much anymore. It was sort of the end of the '80s where people did residencies, and so we were there for a full week. So I remember just thinking, getting up the second day after we'd been there and we'd played the night before, and we were going to do that, stay put for the whole week in the mountains there was like racquetball at the place and you know saunas and you just sat around and walked around the mountains all day and then played shows that night and drank and met people and i thought this, this is pretty is cool <laughs> i could do this <laughs> were you making money then yeah uh at the time yes like that first tour we made more money than we ever did after that because like I was saying, that was sort of the end of the era of bands who were sort of, uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, the end of the era, era of clubs where live music was where they could afford, I guess, because there wasn't as much competition from all the other media that we have mm -hmm. now, that people still went out to clubs regularly enough that an unknown band could tour and make good money doing those residencies that I described, right? So at the time, we didn't realize how good we had it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where you could go out and, and come home with money yeah. as a band, money in your pocket and say, like, I forget how much we made, but it was enough to like put a down payment on our first CD. Wow. Like on the recording time, which 
you know, every other tour that band did after that and any other band I was part of, we would lose thousands. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure you hear about this all the time, right? No, because it's difficult. And you also think about the geography of Canada. I mean, it's, it's a vast space to cover. Yeah. It's not laid out right. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody made a mistake. Yeah. That's great. So, so that must've been like very encouraging. Oh yeah. But I, I, we were too clued out to realize how, what a big deal it was to go on the road for your first tour and make money and, and actually have people show up at the shows without any understanding of publicity or, you know, we didn't have a song on the radio, nothing. But anyway, it's great. Good time. <laughs> the good old days. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny to say it like that because I guess my assessment of it's colored by the years that I spent touring with other bands and as a solo artist and, mm-hmm. and, how difficult it is to like get people's attention and you know try and cobble that into some kind of a living right especially on the road realizing how hard that was and how easy it seemed to us the first time around do you think it actually was easy or do you think your your expectations are so undefined that it made it easy i think it's a mixture of both but i think it actually for that first try with that band at that time it actually was easier so when that band not failed but when it ended a few years later Uh that's when you started a band with steve is that correct with steve strongman that's right um so when that band ended what was that like like what was the feeling there well i was still in my mid-20s and that band all in all only really lasted for maybe three years. But in those three years, I learned a ton about how the music business works and what it means to have a manager and an agent and what the goal is in terms of trying to connect with listeners and how you might do that and how publicists work and how, you know, how you connect doing a show with, the publicity around that to try and get people to come and hear you if, if they don't know who you are and try and get your song on the radio and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, so that was essential to, like what I had essentially ended up deciding was I don't want any of those people involved. I want to try and do it myself, which wow. is a double-edged sword. <laughs> <laughs> but you thought of that because there was too much overhead? What was the thinking behind that? Well, I remember at the time that band, the Groove Daddies, did two records. The first record, the business people loved it. The second record, they didn't love it, which means our hands were tied. Here we were, we'd sunk all this money of our own into this record, and the agent and the manager and the, anyone around us were basically saying, we're not going to book you, we're not, we're not going to help you further your career because we don't think the record you made has a single on it which I understand from their perspective, but I felt like as a musician, I don't ever want to be in a position where someone tells me I can't make music, (laughs) you know, but that's, that's what it was effectively. So, you know, I learned a lot and we learned a lot, but you continued and you said, I'm going to start this new band and take on more of the business on, on on my own so that I had more control and, you know, with mixed results. <laughs> Tell me the pros and cons. Well, the pros are you never get into a situation where you're not allowed to play because at the, at the time that band, the Groove Daddies, were entirely dependent on those middlemen to, to do anything, to play any kind of show. We had no network of 
of no contact with the club bookers themselves. The agent was the middleman. You see what I'm saying? So that meant we couldn't just go on the road. Whereas the subsequent bands that I, we would book our own tours and we would do our own publicity and we would, you know, and so obviously you make a ton of mistakes doing it, but you learn a lot and you retain control and you can, you know, you can go out and, drive your own bus. We were never on an actual bus. I just mean drive <laughs> metaphorical bus, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. But the, the downside is you end up spending a lot of time with your hands on a keyboard instead of on a guitar. I don't mean a piano, yeah, you know, yeah. like yeah. Well, on the phone. doing business stuff, which, which ultimately later, like 10, 15 years later, when I was doing my solo career, that ended up really wearing me out and burning me out just doing like because at that time like I was probably doing 95% business stuff and 5% music right which is typical for musicians right right and I never in the world would have guessed that when I started playing guitar in grade seven right like you don't get into it because you want to be a a business person (laughs) right you want to play guitar and then you realize that that's just not easy, so you need to take over the business, and then the business takes over you. That's 100% right. So so now, I mean, people, especially in my role as a producer, I'm often dealing with younger people who ask your advice on these kinds of things, and I, I, I often find it difficult to, to give them any definitive answer because it's such a double-edged sword, any decision you make. You know, like yeah. I, I just been talking about, on the one hand when you involve business people, you lose a lot of your own autonomy, but if they're the right people, you gain a lot and you actually spend way more time making music. So. Were you, what did you think about the business of music when you came out of this, by the time you came out of the second band? Because the business of music can just eat people up, right? And I'm not sure, I got the impression that maybe there's a part of that that Things didn't go right with plasticine, and and funds were low, and mm-hmm. going keeping keeping the band alive was a difficult thing. Yeah, yeah. So at um, for the sake of continuity, this this first band was called the Groove Daddies, and then there was another band that we formed called Marigold, which was Steve and I, and two other guys, bass player and a drummer, Jody and Cookie, and then we ended up not seeing eye to eye, and we ended up thinking Steve and I as frontmen, well, we're just going to hire people now as opposed to being in a band with people. And that's a whole other discussion, right? right? So then the band that ended up happening with that was uh, Plasticine with Roger Travassos and Adam Bushlin. And so that was Steve and I as sort of the guys, the writers, the the band who, hiring Adam and uh, Roger as sidemen, which again, had pros and cons. I mean, we were all tight friends anyway, but that band ended up even getting further along into the music industry than Groove Daddies did in the sense that we signed a record deal at the time with Songcorp. So I don't know if you're familiar with them. They were Alan Gregg and the guys who managed the hip and they merged with Attic, what was Attic Records. And they were really well positioned as like the biggest indie in Canada, which to us sounded perfect, right? Mm. Like, meaning they they would have on paper, they would have the power of a major with the sort of autonomy and the speed and the, like the 
the cred of an indie. Right. So that, that worked with our kind of ethic and everything, but and it all fell apart. So what, where we ended up at the end of that was we'd invested all this time and money into this career and, and, you know, we'd made some videos and we'd toured the country and everything. And at the end of it all, because the record company went bankrupt, it, it really put us, it, everything was kind of wasted in the sense that we had to start from scratch. No, and then were you able to keep the masters of the music or? Um, we had done a license with our first record, which we'd funded ourselves, right. luckily. So we had to let that elapse. Okay. So that was three years of not being able to do anything with it. Ugh. And, but then the, the second record, which we'd made, they went bankrupt while we were making it. So luckily we were able to keep that. But, but at that point, the feeling between Steve and I was, let's just do it ourselves because we just put three years into doing the whole dance with record companies and trying to, you know, mm-hmm. get all your ducks in a row so that you can really get out there and, and make a name for yourself. And then, then it all goes to shit in because of someone else, right? So I, I don't have the answer. It's just my experience, right? So when, when these things happen, and they seem to happen to a lot of people, uh-huh. like, like for whatever reason. Have you had this kind of conversation oh, yeah, here before, sure, yeah. right? right? People, the, the record company going bankrupt seems right. to be like a, a very common right. problem. Or, or, you know, things getting tied up or whatever. When that happens, like how do you feel about the business of music? Well, I never wavered on actually loving to play music for people and for myself and write music and, and just collaborate and have fun with music. That's that's never, I never wavered on that, but in terms of like trying to make a living at it and trying to, to get it out to a wider public, uh, yeah, it does kind of wear you out sometimes. Did you ever question it? Did you ever say, I, I don't know if I want to do this or I'm cut out for this uh, I, I don't think I, I'm too stubborn maybe I don't know uh, not really I just remember being frustrated with how things played out but then at the same time I, I I never really thought I was entitled to anything it was just more of a an interesting problem you know like okay now what <laughs> you know because the whole idea of, of wanting to be a star or anything like that was never really the goal it's more like how do I get to keep doing this right Right. So that was the next question. So after that all fell apart of, you know, three years of kind of meeting people and networking and and trying to make as much noise as possible with the hopes of getting this infrastructure of someone who can really push you to the wider world, that all falling apart. So then I went, okay, I'm doing everything myself. And that's what I did for the next like 10 years. So that and then also deciding that you want to become a solo artist. That's right. Now, what, how difficult was that decision to, to say, I'm going to go out on my own as opposed to with a band? That was just a natural evolution because at that time I was in my late 20s, early 30s. So that, you know, people were starting to pair off, start families. And the whole band thing was a lot less practical than when you're in your 20s, right? right. Which you don't actually realize or I didn't naively realize that until then. You know, you sort of get to early 30s and you think, huh. It's not like it was, you know, people don't want to just go and jump in a van and drive across the country and not, you know, make any money just because, because I was always that guy. I, I never cared. I just went, let's do it. 
Right. <laughs> Without any, any thought of, hey, you know, really, does this make sense? Should we get out a, you know, a spreadsheet and see how this all, like, I, I just, we would just do it, right? Which, again, has, has its pros. Because, you know, yeah. if you really, if I had really looked at things from with a cold business eye, I, I might never have done any of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. Most people would probably. <laughs> so it's a good thing that you know I I was as naive as I was. And then, when you decided to go out on your own, how difficult was that decision? Was it just the economics that it, you had control over everything, and it was just cheaper to tour on your own, or like? What yeah, was yeah. It? That that was a lot of it. A lot of it was okay. I've just spent the better part of the last full decade dedicating myself to not only working with bands. And working within a band, but uh, collaborating with business people to try and get music out to people. So now I thought, okay, you know, because right around that time, the internet was starting to become a thing. It seems sort of quaint to to talk about it like that now because <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's it's hard to imagine. But at, at that time, it was sort of like this was a big uh, light bulb going off for me. I had started touring just through my network of contacts that I'd made with the bands over the years. And I got a little smart and calculated in the sense that I, I said to myself, why don't I, I mean, I live in Toronto. What am I killing myself going back and forth east, west across Canada touring? Why don't I just go an hour south or even five, ten hours south? And, you know, if you draw a line around Toronto, Boston, New York City, and maybe even go as far west as Chicago. There's there's more people there. Right. <laughs> you know why would you go further? So I started doing that. Right. How simple was how simple was it to get into the states? It, the thing that got me excited at that time was I had a lot easier time playing in the states than I did in Canada. I think it was a combination of how I was approaching it, the fact that I was a little bit exotic because. I wasn't from the U.S. So if you're a guy contacting someone on MySpace right. in uh, 2003 who books a club in Pittsburgh or whatever, they're going to think, this guy's coming down from Toronto. They might give you a shot, right? Or then they would have. Right. Now, my impression is the market's pretty saturated with people doing that, singer-songwriters. But at the time, well, it was... Still using MySpace, they're in trouble. Well, right, right, right. <laughs> but this was the thing. It blew my mind. Uh, I showed up at a show, uh, there's a band called Endless Mike and the Beagle Club who are from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. who I met at an open stage in New Haven. So what I would do is I would book myself these tours, I would just sleep in my van, and I would, on nights off, like if you couldn't, you might be able to book a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then on Sunday or Monday, Tuesday, I would just go to open stages and you could make money doing that. You could go and play three songs at an open stage and if you blew people away, you'd sell CDs, right? And you're sleeping on your van floor anyway. Right. So I'd survive on sardines and rice cakes and sleep on my van floor and then go to open stages like that and meet people. So it's a really long story. I met that band Endless Mike at this open stage in New Haven couple months later, they invite me to their hometown, which was Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I show up there. I'm playing to about 200 kids. They're singing my songs word for word, and I'd never been there before. They were listening to my tunes on MySpace. Wow. And you can imagine 
coming from the era of if you don't have a song on the radio yeah. or you have video hit, nobody knows anything. Well, this is the dawn of a new era. This is exciting, right? I can show up at, at in a city in the U.S. where I've never played before, and these kids are all singing my song, and I'm selling them CDs. This, well, we're onto something here, right? Yeah, for sure. Anyway, that that was my feeling at the time, right? But it didn't last. Uh, I mean, you it had some did. success on your solo stuff. Right? Well, that's what that was. Right. That's but what we also that had was. a video and exactly. So, I mean, success. It depends how you define it. I mean. I was touring, playing, you know, between 2005 and probably 2010. I probably played over 100 shows a year, every single one of those years, a lot of them in the States. And, you know, I was making some progress, but like I was alluding to earlier, I was spending a lot of time doing everything but playing music. So that took its toll after a while. Yeah, definitely. So was there a moment where you thought, I need to change things? Or rethink my plan or whatever. Uh, well, again, like I was, I was saying earlier about not really making <laughs> calculated decisions. Around that time, people started, around the time when I, used, I was starting to get fed up with doing that much business work for that many years, people started, people who liked the records that I'd made myself, for myself, started to ask me to produce their records. So it was kind of a natural evolution into producing for other people, mm-hmm. which I'd never considered that I could do. It never even occurred to me. Because I always thought, what's a producer? That's, that's somebody who has a different skill set than I have. And then it turns out after doing it for a bit and a pretty steep learning curve, uh, I realized I had a lot of skills that, that were pretty useful. So tell me for those of us who might not be very clear on what that actual role is what does the producer do what do you do for an artist so that's i don't know how many times you ask producers that it's it's a pretty vague title right and every producer you ask will have a different answer and i presume you have a different function for different artists yeah totally um a good way to answer that i think is probably to to divide it into different types of producers Broadly, I think there's there's two types of producers. A producer who, who comes from a songwriter, performer, musician background, and a producer who comes more from an engineering uh, tech background. And that's an oversimplification. I can never say that word. Simplification. But broadly, I think most people fit into one or the other. I mean, sometimes you'll find someone who has really strong skill sets in both, and those people obviously are really valuable. So I started more, obviously, as we've been talking about for the last hour or whatever it is, more from the musician-songwriter camp. And so I think when I work with artists, one of the most valuable things I bring to it is having been in their shoes dealing with producers and being able to, to optimize the whole experience with what I learned being the artist. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but if you could clarify that a little more, like, okay, so I come to you with a bunch of songs and I say, I want to do a record. I want you to be my producer. Yeah. What happens next? What happens next? I ask what your goals are. Mm-hmm. What are you trying to do? What do you, you know, is this a labor of love? This is just art? Or are you trying to make money on it? And if so, 
who do you see yourself? Who do you compare yourself to that's out there in the world? And then how do we get through to people who are likely to, to want to buy that? Okay. And then come up with a plan for how to do that. Like if, if I say yes, then that means I think you have a hope <laughs> of doing that, right. right? Or I think I can help you somehow or at least help you be the best you can be toward whatever your goals are, right? So but most being in a way of rearranging the song, rewriting the song. It depends who it is. That's, I, it sounds like I'm being vague now, but the, I've done so many different kinds of projects where my role is different in each, but more often than not, I'm co-writing with almost everybody. Right. Uh, more often than not, I'm doing a, a fair bit of engineering. I'm typically, depending on the budget, getting someone else to mix because I think uh, a fundamental concept is to get another brain and another set of ears to mix because right. I think when you mix your own productions, there's some downsides to that. Um, but if someone's coming to me, maybe I should break it down. You're saying, so then what happens next? Uh, we'll, we'll figure out, do they have the songs that I think, and, and I shouldn't just say like, as a producer, I, I never say things completely definitively. I'll just say, this is my opinion. Uh, you know, I, I don't think you have the songs. You need to write more. You need to write more with me or you need to write more with ABCD, other writers or other musicians. Once we have the songs, then how are we going to record them? Depending on the genre, depending on so lots w- of... When you first started becoming a producer obviously people came to you and obviously people who knew you and your work Mm -hmm. but as that list grows do you reject people in terms of whether it be not the right fit or you just don't think that you have much to offer them or whatever or is it and i'd say it so bluntly but is it a paying gig therefore you're hiring me as a producer i will do whatever you want no i've said no I, i i say no when it makes sense i say no when i I don't think I have a lot to offer the project or when I'm busy enough that I can't give it enough attention and then it's not fair to anyone. It's not fair to the people I'm, I've already committed to or, you know, like the contractor thing we were talking about earlier. Right. So how easy is it to estimate the time effort that you're going to put into something? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. That's something I've definitely been guilty of. And that I've suffered for in the sense that if I believe in a project, I'll, it may take years. If the person is, is willing to, (laughs) to go on that journey. So yeah, it's sometimes really like, I'll give you for, for instance, some records I've done where we had lofty goals we might spend a year writing and write, you know, 60 or 70 songs with many different people and all the while doing different recordings of those songs until we feel like we've hit on the sound, right. you know? I've done that and it's it's a really expensive way to do things, but you certainly... Sorry, expensive for who? Because I can't imagine you saying, okay, so it's not an hourly charge, right? No, no, it's, it's expensive for me right. and for whoever's the artist as well, because obviously they're spending the time, but I I don't mean it's expensive in terms of them paying me for every hour of time that I'm spending, but it's definitely cost me in terms of 
how much time you, you know how much it. time you put into it but i mean if you believe in something i mean that's how records of consequence have been made as far as i understand it mm-hmm. you know classic records that you hear that you know tore the world apart a, a lot of times they were they were made by a collaboration of people who really sort of went to the ends of the earth to to find a sound that right. that hadn't really quite been made before so with the changing landscape of the music industry, with streaming being dominant and with CD sales going down and whatever, mm-hmm. with live gigs becoming difficult, does that change your approach to things? Because, I mean, does it make sense to invest a year and a half into writing songs when the end result might be that you're still not going to sell massive amounts of CD? Or does it, do you not look at it that way? Well, that's definitely something that was definitely something you want to discuss and make sure that people, people understand when they're, they're, they're going into it. Having said that, uh, I mean, people who are making an impact in music, just because they're not selling the music itself doesn't mean they don't have thriving careers. Right. Right. I mean, there's lots of people who are, who are making great careers. They just don't make the music itself is a loss leader, right? So how do you how do you view that? Like how do you measure things now when you work with musicians and they release the album? Is it just okay, they're gigging a lot more or there's a lot more downloads on Spotify or like how or do you even look at it that way? Is that that's not the goal? Normally I'm not that involved in the business. I mean, I leave that up to them. I mean, what the questions I ask are where do you see yourself out in the world and can I get you sounding such that you'll be able to compete in that Mm -hmm. arena and how you're going to ultimately make money is up to you right so chances are it's going to be on live and merch and stuff like that right and syncs more than anything less on certainly not downloads and like people have been discussing streamings doesn't pay anywhere mm-hmm. near but i mean you still for something that's a viral video or you know a radio hit that that still does pay what it what it always did only you know less less and less obviously as time goes on but i mean if you have a radio hit in this day on a you know pop format you're still making money on that right, right. So your approach doesn't change because of that. Yeah, having said that, I don't work in that sphere. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not doing Miley Cyrus records right. really. I mean, I've done some synth pop stuff, but it's still more indie niche type stuff. It's not full on. So when you sit down with an artist and say, "Okay, what do you see this doing or what what is your goal?" Do most artists have that in mind or do they have a clear idea of what they want to achieve with this next project? I think most most artists are more like I described myself when I was younger, which is they don't have a super clear idea of how and why they're doing what they're doing. They want to do art right. for the most part. And, and the ones that get a clearer idea and, and get more calculated about the business end tend to do better because they can make better decisions about how to go about things, but it doesn't mean the art itself is better because I think in the end, there's this esoteric thing that we've all dedicated ourselves to that we don't 
even know why <laughs> we do. You know, because if we, I mean, Steve and I joke about this. If if we could have made another choice in terms of a business or a career, we probably would have. Right. We just, nothing ever, well, you nothing compares, yeah. right? You just don't have a choice. You just have to do this thing you're driven to do. So then any discussion of, you know, calculating things is kind of a joke because <laughs> you're going to do it anyway, right? Right. <laughs> so what... I think making an album is a difficult thing. Yeah. Like, to do it right and whatever. Do you see it that way? Do you see creating this this piece of work? It can be difficult. <laughs> I like can to, I like to hope that if I involve myself, I'd, I don't make it more difficult. <laughs> I, I, I try, I'm trying to... Uh, go the opposite direction right but i mean as a as a goal because you know you see a lot of people saying okay we're just going to do eps now or whatever sure um I, and ultimately i think it's about the song i think the song is king and and oh yeah you know so is that how does that come into play like it, when somebody says okay i want to do an album mm-hmm. do you look at it as a whole concept of an album and not meaning conceptual album but the entire product or do you look at it individually as as a collection of songs uh i don't really focus on i mean now more and more i agree people are going to eps for various reasons people don't listen to albums as holes right. the way they used to having said that there's a movement with vinyl now so people wanting to engage with music more that way. So that's a movement in the opposite direction. Right. So I, I don't get too involved. I mean, I can answer that in two ways. One, if someone's doing an eight-song collection, I'll think of the eight songs in the sense that you're not going to do all ballads. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm getting at with that? You might do one out of eight or two out of eight unless you're a ballad artist. You want to lead with, you want the bulk of the songs on the collection to be representative of your core strength, whatever that is, right? Whereas uh, I suppose if you were just doing one-off singles, what would the approach be? It doesn't matter. You just, they're all one-off, so there's no context. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's hard to answer. I'm sorry if I'm... uh... No, no, no. (laughs) Because I presume, like we said, every example is different and every artist is different. See, I think this gets at the heart of one of the most difficult discussions and um, difficult things to wrap your head around as an artist that I... I can't say that I'm able to impress this on people enough, especially artists who who have often have this idea that you just do the art and things will take care of themselves. And I believe that to a certain extent, but at the same time, especially in this day and age of trying to get people's attention for even five seconds. This, so this is the thing I'm getting to. Um, coming back to this this idea of okay let's say we have an eight song album maybe you'll have two ballads two songs ballad or whatever two songs that are off brand for if right. you want to be really 
really uh, mercenary about it. The thing I want to impress on artists is every time you make a decision about any song you're going to record or any sound you're going to use on a recording or any anything you do, you're basically fighting for that five seconds of attention that you're hoping to get from someone who's likely to like what you do. Hmm. So anytime you're doing something that's away from that focus, it's a liability. So by that line of thinking, you should never do ballads if you're not a ballad artist. And you should, whether you're making an album or just doing singles, you basically... Every single thing should be the first thing you would play to anyone. Okay. Because if it isn't, that you might get someone's attention for five seconds, and then they might want to come to your show. And then what happens when they come to your show and they find out that that five seconds is not representative? Right. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of their time. It's a waste of all your time and money that you spent promoting and going and driving your car to get to... You see where where I'm going with this? And so uh, that might have been a a long-winded way of going about it, but that's how I answer that question, right? So in a a perfect world, when you're producing, there are no fillers in terms of songs. Well, yeah, if you have any commercial aspirations at all. There's no such thing. All that is is a decision to <laughs> to waste time and money, I suppose, right? Yeah. And that's not only in the making of the record itself. That's in whatever promotion you're going to chase it with, right? Mm-hmm. So, having said that, going back to the other line of thinking, I was I was championing. If it's just art, then doesn't matter. You're just expressing yourself. Forget the commercial aspirations. You're you're happy to to put whatever resources behind that because you, you want to do it anyway. You'll do it for free. It doesn't matter whether it connects with an audience. Right. So now the, the magic you know, meeting of those, those two lines of thinking is, is inspiration where you, know, you follow your heart and you figure out a way to connect with people and it all works out. Right. <laughs> so when, you, when these opportunities to produce came along and you were kind of fed up with the the business side of music or the amount of time you're spending with promoting yourself, how easy was it to make that decision to become a full-time producer or did it just happen and you just never questioned? Oh, I loved it. I, at the time I was, I was like this, I I thought to myself, this is fantastic. I went from 95% business, 5% music to the opposite because as a producer, I do very little business and self-promotion it's it all comes through kind of my my existing network and even doing even the the most sort of avid self-promoting producers are still doing a really small fraction of of the kind of self-promotion you would do as an artist right it's almost all just writing and collaborating i mean to put in perspective between 2003 and 2011, I put out, I think, four solo records. One. Yeah, four. Right. And I think between 2009 and now, I've probably done 30 or 40 records and co-written the bulk of those songs. Right. 
it's 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 so much music like it's funny because people who were fans of me as a touring singer songwriter would be come up to me and say well you know don't you miss playing and don't you miss writing and I try and tell them I've written more and played more and made more music as a producer exponentially more than as a, as a solo artist but you didn't miss that playing live in front of people I know you still do that every uh-huh, so often uh-huh. but- did you not miss that? Yeah, I miss it. That's what I. That's what I was saying at the the top of this right. discussion. That for what I, like, I guess as a combination of being so excited to just dive into producing, and because I liked it so much, and because I was just getting to finally do way more music. I guess that's that kind of explains why the the live playing went by the wayside, and so it took me a few different things to kind of rediscover that this year. So now that you've rediscovered it, if I can speak, um, <laughs> tell me what you've learned from the experience of being a producer that's now translated into you, hopefully you becoming a better performer. Oh, it's so it's, yeah, I think it's funny. One of the things I really have to watch for is always having the producer devil on your shoulder mm-hmm. as a performer. So like in you know, in the moment of writing a song or in the moment of performing, you have the producer brain saying, well, actually, you should approach it differently or, you're, you, know, you know, you're doing this wrong or this and this, or I would actually, you know, that's no good. You can't have that. You have to be able to, to just let go of that for a bit and then come back to it later. But overall, I would say I've had a pretty healthy approach to it. And, and if anything, I'm getting much better as a singer. And like in this last little stint, last little six months of doing residencies, I've worked more kind of at becoming a better singer and better guitar player and better live performer. And I actually have tools to do it. And those tools, so I gathered as a producer and that that's been huge because it's, it's funny. I've been woodshedding and getting, getting better. I'm repeating myself now, but in ways that I didn't really have the wherewithal to do, because I just didn't have the experience. So that, that's been great because I, I really see the growth. And, and that's, that's all like whether or not, like what that amounts to is for me, it's more personal satisfaction than anything. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. You know, it's, it's not really going to make a difference that much. But, you know, people that have been coming to see me have noticed. And it's, it's funny because obviously people aren't going to tell you to your face, hey, listen, you, sh- you probably sh- shouldn't be playing, right? <laughs> They're not going to say, hey, listen, you should have hung it up. you're never going to hear those things. But what I have been hearing is, you know, you're better than you ever were. You're a better singer than you were last time I saw you. That's nice to hear, you know, when it's often we're talking about 10 years ago. Did you spend any time writing solo stuff in the last 10 years? I know you collaborated a lot with all these different musicians you've worked with, but have you spent any time just working on your Not much. That's something I've I've been thinking about doing. We'll see how it, how it plays out. And then I guess the next thing would be, what, where does the solo career go from here? Is it, are you just happy being a busy producer and just doing some gigs here and there? Or would you ever pursue a solo career again? I mean, I'm pursuing it in, in the sense that I'm doing these residencies. Right. I'm playing my music in terms of writing new music and recording it. I haven't done that component of it, but that'll happen sooner or later. I'm, I just don't, can't say exactly when now it, it, the way I'm looking at it, it's, I'm just looking at it as more of a balance. I think 
the way I'm looking at my life and my work life now is more about, I think I was pretty unhappy doing that much business work, striving to try and make something of myself as a singer songwriter. And I think now I'm thinking more of it in terms of just balancing what I really love to do, making enough money that I'm not, you know, starving and sleeping on my, uh, van floor That's and, a good goal and getting getting excited about collaborating with people so yeah that's a good life i think yeah i mean i guess the other thing that we should mention is that in your producer role you've had quite a bit of success and recognition right in in, in juno nominations and winning junos and winning other awards yeah that's that's been that's been really nice in the sense that uh when I say nice, it sounds quaint. I'm not. I, I'm sincerely surprised and and grateful and honored by it. But at the same time, I realize it's not sports. It's not an exact science. So for me to say, you know, I wouldn't want to put too much stock in it right. because that's just one person's opinion of you know who's to say what the best record of any given year in any genre right. is. It's kind of silly, right? That's the why. The reason why any of us got into music is because precisely it isn't sports. Right. It's subjective, right? Having said that, for f- to get that kind of an honor really does legitimize you yeah. in, in many people's eyes, and that makes a lot of things easier. So I'm grateful for that. I mean, if it was only one, it would be different. Sure. You've had few nominations, few. Yeah, successes. that's that's true. Yeah. So I'm I'm yeah, I feel proud of that and I, I'm for the artists that I work with too. I feel like cuz it's funny because of the subjectivity like I was saying, as a producer it's sometimes hard to pitch yourself because unless you have this kind of a badge like a Juno yeah. or several Juno nominations, you really have nothing to say like, you know, why should anyone work with you? Well, here's why, right? right? So, and especially to be able to, you know, have someone trust you with their art and their work and their life and their money, and then to have them win a Juno or get nominated, that changes their life forever. Mm -hmm. So that feels great. Is it, I know that you've had a long relationship with Steve. You've been friends for a long time. But with other artists who come to you, is it difficult to gain that trust? Like, does it take a while for them to kind of give it all up and, and trust you in a way that they that you can say anything to them? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's huge. That's maybe the biggest thing. And do you know the moment when it happens? Well, it's, it's not all at once, and it's not one day to the next. It's, it's gradual, like you would imagine. And, you know, sometimes it never happens. So... I'm not sure what you can do other than be honest and and make sure they understand what your motivations are for mm-hmm. any given decision and try and communicate that clearly. But it must be hard when you work with somebody for a certain amount of time and, and feel in the end that you never maybe got that trust. Yeah, yeah. That's some of the most frustrating experience I've had as a producer have been that precisely, where yeah. I felt like... I wasn't given a chance to really show the person my vision for what they could be. And as a result, we didn't get anything great. And as a result, 
it's kind of of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You didn't, you know, the, you didn't trust me enough mm. for me to do my job. And now it's not a good job. Right. And that's really frustrating. Right. Oh, sure. But uh, it's part of the gig. <laughs> <laughs> and it's their fault. No, it's their fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all a collaboration. Yes. Right. And then, so it's just a puzzle, you know, you think, well, okay, how do I do it next time? Right. But it's different, right? Because it's not like, because it's different people and it's, it, you're dealing with different Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's one big thing that I learned is there's so much chemistry involved. Right. Like any relationship, like especially romantic relationships, sometimes there's just chemistry. And so, if anything, now when I'm agreeing to do things, I try and look for that chemistry first. Because if it's not there, and it's not saying... I have some people who are dear friends of mine who on paper you would think we would have good chemistry, but we don't have good chem- working chemistry. And it's, I don't, I'm not necessarily good for them in a producer role. It's not because they're not great or I'm not great. Right. It's because the chemistry is not there. That's, right. That was an important realization. And you know how to measure that now? Better than I did before I, I, I put that much weight into that right yeah yeah it's yeah i i I don't know what more to say about it (laughs) (laughs) and i don't mean that it's 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 not a nebulous as as nebulous a thing you you can feel it in a room when you you click with someone you know and whether they're willing to take chances and whether you're willing to take chances and whether you feel self-conscious or whether you feel sort of enabled yeah, and also this is, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's a very intimate thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, if they're bringing songs to you or their work to you, then, then you know, to, for them to trust you is... You know, like, like I said, it's a lot like a romantic relationship, you know? You, do you feel self-conscious being naked in front of this person? You, right. you know, you don't want that. No. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, for sure. My final question to you is, is, is there any project you can talk about that you're working on? Um, I'm working on lots of different things right now. I'm working on Sean Pynchon's new record. Oh, okay. And congratulations uh, on the last one. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, nice that was, work. I was really excited to get that kind of recognition for, and for, for Sean too. I know it was huge for him. Yeah. There seems to be quite a buzz about him now. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's so good, man. So we're working on his new record. I'm working with a woman called Jamie Gray. She's a young rock singer out of Toronto. Um, I'm working on a disco project with these DJs called the Patchouli Brothers, and that's been fantastic. Wow. Um, I'm working with Amanda Mabro, who I did a, a project called 30 Frames with her okay. and this guy, Sebastian Freeman, a few years ago. It was an electronic kind of synth poppy thing. And this, this is more, she has a background in kind of jazz and theatery kind of big voice she's a vocal teacher so she's she's a great friend and she's an amazing artist um it's a there's a long list i'm like i was saying when we we started i've i've got a ton of stuff coming up that i'm excited about and uh how far yeah. in advance are you booked not the next six months are spoken for wow yeah yeah i'm doing uh some country stuff with this guy called dave gallagher I'm doing Beth Moore, who I co-wrote a bunch of stuff with on her last record. She did really well on CBC Radio 2 and sort of an indie alternative kind of thing. I'm working on her new record, too. And So these are all spread out, or are they working on them at the same time? Um, 
bit of both. Yeah, I, I, about three of those are all happening at once. And other stuff is sort of coming a little later in the spring. Wow. This is exciting. Thank it is so exciting. Yeah. yeah, I feel really, really thankful and fortunate to be able to be doing that that much music with that many different people who inevitably become friends and then also just not having to be Rob Zabo. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That was one of the big things with being a touring singer-songwriter was you kind of have to be that guy. Right. right. Whereas now I can be all these different guys. Lots of different guys. Yeah, yeah. Lots of different genres. Yeah, it can be all these different people, you know, many of them women, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's very, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Well, thank you for taking this time. I really appreciate yeah, thanks, the chance Michael. to chat with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much.